Welcome to You Hear It First, an unofficial, unfiltered history of MTV News. I'm Benjamin Way. For much of its 36 years, MTV News was where young people everywhere got their news first. And from 1996 to 2014, I had a front row seat. These are the stories behind the stories from the people who told them. This is You Hear It First. At one point in his four decades of broadcasting innovation, Doug Herzog oversaw MTV, Comedy Central, VH1, TV Land, Spike, and Logo at the same time, in addition to previous stints at Fox and USA. Doug greenlit Malcolm in the Middle, Family Guy, and Futurama, and launched The Real World, Road Rules, The Daily Show, The Colbert Report, Chappelle Show, Key and Peel, South Park, and on and on and on. Doug arrived at MTV's Midtown offices in September 1984, fresh from gigs at CNN and Entertainment Tonight. He was just 25 years old. As MTV's first news director, he helped transform the three-year-old network's news operation from VJ-hosted ribbon reads to enterprise primetime journalism. This week, Doug talks about how watching Saturday Night Live in his Patterson, New Jersey living room and seeing Bob Marley live in a Kingston, Jamaica stadium helped shape his worldview. He shares stories about being recruited by and almost turning down MTV co-founders John Sykes and Bob Pittman, branding 10 to the hour, every hour news briefs, hiring Kurt Loder, launching The Week in Rock and evolving the Video Music Awards. He explains the channel's pivot from music videos to programming once and for all, plus the decision to keep MTV forever young in the straight line from the real world to Instagram. And Doug recalls the pesky teenage hip-hop act pilfering records from the MTV newsroom that called themselves Beastie Boys, storming the stage at Live Aid and hanging with Bruce Springsteen. Ladies and gentlemen, Doug Herzog. I spent a lot of time in front of the TV set to the point where, where my parents later told me they were worried about me. And I said later, I go, look, I was studying as it turned out. If I could point to one thing, and I've been thinking about this lately, Saturday Night Live oh, premiered in 1975. I was in high school and, you know, not only was it sort of a revelation just in terms of what you could do on TV and TV comedy, but it was a big revelation in terms of music. Yeah, The way they used to book that show in the early years, you know, like, see, Gil Scott Heron and Jimmy Cliff and wow. Patti Smith yeah. and UB Blake. And it was just all over the map. And it just seemed like the coolest thing in the world. I lived right outside of New York City. I would dream about being at Saturday Night Live every week. By the way, never actually been to it. Well, I, I sat in the audience once for an anniversary show, which wasn't a real show. I was friendly. You know, we, we had worked at MTV with like Sandler and Spade yeah, and yeah. Rock and those guys when they were really just coming up. They invited me over one night, but I, I didn't even sit in the audience. I was like up in some little perch where you could watch out a window. What was your first basic cable memory? My grandmother lived in an apartment in Lincoln Center in Manhattan. Oh, wow. I was a big Nick fan. They won the NBA title in the 69-70 season. In those days, none of the home games were ever televised, sure, so you listened yeah. to a lot of radio. The NBA Finals was the Lakers against the New York Knicks, Los oh, Angeles versus yeah. New York. 
It went to a game seven, which, by the way, was not shown live anywhere in the country because nobody cared. Basketball was just not a big enough thing yet. Right, sure. Uh, This is pre-Magic and Bird, and it was shown on tape delay. So it was going to come on after the 11 o'clock news. It would come on at 11.30. So my dad and I went to my grandmother's apartment because she had the very first version of what was Manhattan Cable. Wow. She would get all the events from Madison Square Garden. Sort of a forerunner of both the USA Network and the Madison Square Garden Network. And then she had this other channel that would get like, you know, polka concerts and W.C. Fields movie. Like she had this weird like box, you know, with these buttons on it and you press. And at that time, there were only three networks and yeah. public television. So more TV for a kid who loved TV was like, sure, like this is cool. <laughs> right. Let me check this out. What's this all about? The Knicks won the championship. And I remember like throw, <laughs> throwing over my grandmother's window to watch everybody take to the streets and celebrate. And it wasn't so much right. a big thing. Who were your early artists? You know, it was AM radio days, right? Yeah. So everything got played on the radio and you listened to everything. You listened to R&B, you listened to rock and roll, you listened to folk, you, you know, a little bit of crossover country, sort of a little bit of everything. I started to gravitate towards like R&B and funk in the 70s. So I was listening to a lot of that. I won't uh, bore you with the story because it's, it's a whole episode, but ended up in Kingston, Jamaica, in the National Stadium in October of 1975 for a Bob Marley, oh, Stevie wow. Wonder benefit oh. concert. In the front row, oh, and I saw Bob Marley for the first time, and it was literally, that changed everything for I me. Bet, my, my Mind blown, and nothing was the same after that. I became like a big reggae fan at a time when that was pretty exotic, and went to Emerson College and started the reggae show, which ran for a long time. I was a little bit of a pioneer. So I was listening to everything, yeah. and I kind of, I, I, you know, I sort of liked it all. And that college radio show is sort of legendary. Give us a snapshot of that. I mean, in the narrative arc of... Doug Hertzog. If you looked at my freshman room wall, there was a Woody Allen poster when it was still cool to like Woody Allen. There was like an Annie Hall poster. I think that's who I wanted to be, but I wanted to be a film director. And then there was a big Bob Marley poster. And, you know, that would tell you everything you wanted to know about the 18-year-old me, I guess. Oh, that's great. But uh, I was looking to get on the radio. It was pretty competitive. I pitched them the idea of like doing a reggae show, which they did not have and hardly anybody did. And they said yes. And it kind of took off pretty quickly. I did it once a week for like two years and became one of the more popular shows on the, on the station. And my senior year, they moved it to a five-day-a-week show where it was for like 30 years. Wow. It was a thing up there. It's called Rockers. And as I understand it, Emerson was popping. The campus was popping, right? Yeah, I went to school with, um, you know, Dennis Leary, who went on to great fame, Mario Cantone, actor-comedian, Stephen Wright. All these guys were just kind of hanging around campus. CNN was first? When I went to college in 1977, none of the places that I worked at in my career actually existed. So CNN launched in June of 1980. I was there as an intern out here in Los Angeles and then went on to work there for a couple of years doing a live kind of D-list celebrity talk show that we would do every night from a office building in Hollywood. So nobody had CNN. Nobody knew what it was. Nobody knew who Ted Turner was. People thought 24-hour news network was dumb. Nobody wanted to pay for television. There were literally just four or five of us. Nobody was over 24. They didn't call it a startup, but it was a startup. And what made you see the potential or was it just like the game in town? It was a job. And it was like graduate school. You know, I mean, I literally did everything. I was, you know, running around getting sandwiches and coffee, but I was also, they were sending me out to produce segments and I'd come back and edit segments and I'd floor direct and I'd write interviews and book guests. And I became like the guy who booked the music acts. And this also sort of coincided with 
the arrival of MTV. Sure. So there were all of a sudden, you know, there were all these sort of over the top music acts that were very camera ready. So I was yeah. running around doing stories on Cindy Lauper and Boy George and Duran Duran and Billy Idol. And I sort of became that guy. Those early days at CNN were a combination of young people, which is all they could afford. It was a non-union house and sort of unemployable news veterans and had all been fired, you know, or let go from their newspaper or local news jobs. And then you do a stint at Entertainment Tonight. Then I did a quick stint at Entertainment Tonight where I was the music producer. And that's, I think, uh, you know, I never really talked to John Sykes who hired me at MTV, but I, I think I came to his attention a couple different ways. One, when I was booking stories at Entertainment Tonight, particularly on those, quote, new wave acts right. that were making videos, we would always incorporate MTV to sort of comment, right? So we might uh, interview Sykes yeah, or Bob yeah. Pittman or somebody there. So I was working closely with a woman named Dorian Lauer, who was in the press department there, who I think talked me up to Sykes. There was a manager who was very good friends with Sykes, who was managing some rock bands that I, I think might have mentioned him to me. And then I sort of scooped them on a Bruce Springsteen interview. Oh, that's great. Bruce, you know, in those days was not doing hardly any press and had not done a national television interview to date. And I sort of scooped MTV by a month. And so, I don't know, one day the phone rang and it was MTV. Amazing. This is born in the USA era. Summer of 1984, this was a peak of the strict music video era, like the era when they were literally just playing music videos. So this was summer of Born in the USA, Prince's Purple Rain, the Jackson's Victory Tour, and Michael's Off the Wall. Yeah. And Madonna drops into the scene. That was kind of the Mount Rushmore of music videos. Totally. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I got dropped right into the middle of that. I arrived at MTV the week after the very first Video Music Awards. Who interviewed you? It sounds like it might have been John. John was talking to me, and at the same time, the Turner people started a music video channel called oh. Turner Music Channel. And they had a competing offer for me where they were going to pay me a lot more money, give me a much bigger title. And I was, I was living in L.A. at this point, and, were, and I could stay in L.A. I was really, like, trying to figure out like, MTV, because MTV seemed like everything, but this was like, they're going to pay me a lot more money. Yeah. And it was only like $30,000. Turner Classic Music offered me $75,000. Right, I was going to be a right. senior vice president. Yeah. They're going to give me a car. So I called John Sykes. I go, I'm, I'm not going to take it. I turned MTV down. Ooh. And then I get a call from John one day and he said, Bob Pittman's coming to LA and you have to have breakfast with him. And over breakfast at the Bel Air Hotel, Bob Pittman convinced me in about 40 minutes, they're going down, Doug. We're going to take them down. You need to get on with us. And I drove over to see the guy who was running the Turner thing and apologized. And for, by the way, for an extra 10 grand from MTV. So now 40, nice, nice. moved to New York and start the news department. Oh, man. So the first offer was for a producer. The second offer was, we want you to start a news department. Oh, I see that. And then that was it. Next thing I know, I was on a plane headed for Manhattan. How did they describe the opportunity? What Not was well. <laughs> <laughs> they did commit to creating a news department and creating a budget and a staff, which they did not have. But it was very unclear. And by the way, I'm 25 years old. I had no idea what the hell I was doing. So I was just like, okay, let's figure this out. I had literally no idea what I was doing. And I uh, <laughs> got into a room with some other like-minded young folks and started to figure it out. You know, when I got there, there were only a handful of people there. It was a woman named Merle Ginsburg, yeah. who later went on to do random notes at Rolling Stone and pretty significant figure in the fashion journalism world, uh, a guy named Stu Cohn, who was there with Merle for a while. And I believe Michael Shore was there. He had just kind of gotten there. 
you know, got a little bit of money to go out and start figuring some things out and hiring some folks. And we sort of got at it. What was the state of the programming when you walked in the door? Well, and well, how- it, was, it was still music videos. And then there would be these just breaks for the VJs to read the news referred to as MTV Music News. Uh-huh. There was no like graphics or those intros that we had later on with Kurt. It was the jocks reading stuff that Merle and Stu had written for them, kind of rewriting stuff they saw like, you know, in Billboard and music magazines and calling their friends in the record industry and trying to get some scoops and and some interesting tidbits. But it was all very sort of fly by the seat of your fans. Now, all of a sudden, it was an opportunity to spend some money shooting some stories and hiring a little beef up the staff a little bit and see if we could make a go of it. Although I do remember early on, you know, as I was fighting for all this stuff, Bob Pittman telling me, nobody cares about the news, duh. What? <laughs> Good thing he told you that. that might, by the way, that might, that might have been true, but really wasn't a thing. But I took that as a challenge. Uh, for How sure. How get people to care about it? And so what was your vision? I had a little formal training-ish like at CNN and Entertainment Tonight, doing entertainment news. But I think the first thing was to get out of the studio, to get into recording studios, to artists, you know, homes, dressing rooms, concert appearances, events, and kind of get out there. Because we really weren't spending any money on doing that before I got there. Right. Very little. And then also what we were really working towards was a more formal news break where people could really understand this is the news. This is when we do it. This is where you get your information and becoming like the source. Right for popular music, which I think we we ultimately did. Oh, for sure. And did you bring anybody on board initially or did that take a sec? So Linda Cordina, who was a friend and classmate of mine from Emerson, had was over to ABC News. I knew she was a music fan and I brought Linda over. And I would say if, if I was the godfather of MTV News and Linda was definitely the godmother. That's cool. And she came in with a lot of ideas and guns ablazing, and, and she's a pretty powerful person in the room, ambitious and as, as aggressive as I was. So she was one of the first people. We inherited some people from around the halls. It became like a little bit of like, oh, a cool place to, oh, there's doing something interesting over there. Can I go over there? It was a really interesting young guy, fresh out of NYU, joined us, our enfant Talib. So then it was uh, Merle and Stu and Michael and Tim. But then over time, we really started to build out. But in the early days, there was just a handful of us. And then over time, it just started to grow and grow and grow. Did you pioneer and create the nomenclature around 10 to the hour every hour or did that exist? I think it sort of was when they were doing the news, but it didn't come in with any fanfare. Yeah. And we were like, let's announce this. You know, it's like, it's the news break. Having sort of a set time that we could plug into, that became a game changer. I often point to Live Aid as Mm -hmm. like the sort of day that MTV News emerged. Because we went down there, we had a whole MTV News crew there and a whole plan. And we were filing stories all day, sort of on the fly that they were putting on the air. And the VJs took kind of a beating that day, kind of unfairly, for how they were portrayed and shot and used. But the news department turned out to be kind of like the MVP of the day. That was summer of 85. So that felt to me like a turning point where people internally started to look at MTV News as like, oh, there might be something there we could really do there. And that led to you identifying a potential value to have a dedicated anchor? Yes. And then, you know, I'll give credit to Linda Cordina. I think she actually had the idea to to hire Kurt. And I remember thinking like, Kurt Loader at MTV? And he said, yes. (laughs) And we never looked back because it it got to this point where the artists that were toughest to get, so like Springsteen or 
Madonna or Prince, they weren't that excited to talk to the DJs for various reasons. Right, right. And so we thought, well, we should get our own news person who's got like a lot of credibility who they actually want to talk to and trust. Right. And literally the first thing that came up, I think from Linda was Kurt. And uh, I, I really did not think he would ever do something like this. He seemed so anti-MTV. Yeah. But he became the MTV guy. Boy, he sure did. Yeah. And how did that transition go over with those original VJs? Some of these folks are leaving and or getting fired. And, you know, it, it was time to sort of roll it over. You know, the thing about MTV yes. was we were all about never standing in one place forever because yeah. we didn't want to grow old with the audience like, say, Rolling Stone did. Yeah. You know, we wanted to always evolve and, and always be appealing to the next group of, you know, 14-year-olds. And how tacitly was that discussed? Because by the time I show up in the mid nineties, for sure, that's a point of view, but like at some point that had to be a decision because the channel was growing older. I don't think anybody thought about it that much in the very beginning, because who's thinking about that yeah, when you're getting sure. started. Yeah. And, but I think a couple of years in, it began to get in the water that we need to constantly evolve and constantly change. But, the, and somewhere the decision was made, like we're not going to be Rolling Stone. Yeah, It's tough to give up stuff that may have a little life left in it in order to kind of move forward. And so those decisions could always be tough, but that, that definitely became part of the culture and sure. part of what was in the water and how we looked at the world. Yeah, for sure. And how involved were you editorially? I would run the news. I'd run the meeting every day. Oh, cool. So I love that. I yeah. was one of my favorite things in arguing with folks and fierce arguments with Timmy Summer. You know, Tim was one of the first in-house champions of hip-hop and rap music. Right. He was a college friend of Rick Rubin. Wow. Rick used to come up in the early days. Rick was, I think, still at NYU working out of the dorms. He'd bring the Beastie Boys who were unsigned and teenagers and stealing records. And they'd come up to visit <laughs> Tim and some other friends they had there. The interesting thing was we became a little bit of an island ourselves. The way MTV promoted themselves, which was like a lot of cool videos that they never actually played. Because they really just played the hits. Yeah. It was very straight ahead, very AOR, not a lot of black music. The brass always wanted us to like stick to the format. And we were very much like breaking down walls and sure. like Michael Shore might run out and do a Sunra yeah, yeah. interview yeah. or we'd interview REM as they were just breaking on the scene who were not getting played on the channel. For sure. Yeah. Right. And so we became like a little bit of this sort of secret weapon yeah. that kind of was able to sort of do our own thing and help sort of change the water there and hip hop artists, which we weren't playing. We'd go out and talk to Run DMC and some of the early artists who were just starting to make their way and they weren't getting played on the channel yet. So there, there was a little bit of friction within the walls, but we managed to pull it off. For us, it was, you cover Britney so you can cover the Pixies. That was always of our, our short yeah, game, well, right? Yeah. yeah, make sure to pay the bills. Yeah. But then, you know, you also had to use your superpowers and your resources for some more interesting things. And then that also led ultimately to it becoming just MTV news rather than just music news. Right. As time went on, we started covering movies yeah. and music, television, yeah. fashion, and all things related as MTV began to become more of a lifestyle channel. And as I like to say, all roads passed through MTV. Everybody wanted to be on MTV and everybody wanted to be covered by MTV. And so it really began to expand over time. And when did you hear it first become a thing and that sort of pudja, pudja, pudja open? You know, I always just... That was, I feel like that was a little later after Kurt got there yeah. and then the promo department got involved. Ah, like they made us an right, open right. and they created that whole thing. It was really positioned. The big transitional thing that happened at MTV is in, I think, like 86, 
I had already been promoted. So I'm now running what they called original programming, which we didn't really make anything. You know, it was all top 20 countdown, like that kind of video shows. Yep. And Bob Pittman came into a conference room and said, okay, our distribution is increasing. So now we're in more homes, right? We're growing. We are able to sell advertising at higher rates because we have more subscribers, more cable homes, and we're getting rated. And so the research was showing that people were diving in and out. That's because we changed our programming every four minutes. So if you didn't like the Culture Club video that came after the Thompson Twins video that may have come after the Duran Duran video, you might have changed the channel. And so Bob said, we're going to make television shows, which, by the way, in 1986, whatever it was, it was absolute heresy as it pertained to MTV. People thought, no, that's not what MTV, it's the M is for music. You're going to make television shows? You're going to make a game show? Like, what are you, crazy? That's like the cheesiest kind of thing you could ever do. So I was the guy charged with making the shows. So Bob wanted to make three shows. A news show, which was going to be easy because we already were producing news. Wrap it up into a week with a week in rock. We're going to do a dance show because that seemed like playing with our own currency, right? We're going to do an MTV version of uh, American Bandstand five days a week, Club MTV. And we're going to do a game show, which that's the one that made people the craziest because it was the farthest afield. But... Their reason for that was Nickelodeon was having huge success with Double Dare. Of course. And you and it was costing them like $15,000 an episode. <laughs> right. And you could make 65 of them in like a yeah, month. Right. And they're like, you're going to do that. So we went out and we created what I think was a pretty cool game show, Absolutely. which um, Michael Shore's wife, Sue Flinker, was involved in the original meeting and ended up being remote control, which actually ended up being the biggest hit of them all oh, wow, um, at the yeah. time with Ken Ober and uh, Colin Quinn. So that kind of ushered in a whole new era. And of course, you know, by that time, Kurt was uh, the host of The Week in Rock and became like a real thing. I have explained that so many times to people who just don't understand the basics of like, oh, I looked at when it was music. So like- They I, still say that. Yes, I go, they haven't, of course. Like, they haven't played music since 1986. Oh, yeah, I, talking I'm about? talking like 20 minutes ago, I explained. Yeah. So, so now <laughs> exactly. I have the definitive from the man. I mean, I just can't That's wait. That's the story. I mean, Doug, I'm thrilled. I'm going to be like, here, it's, it's at 23 minutes on the podcast. <laughs> it it kind of happened just like that. If it was heresy, what made you inclined to say, okay, cool, I'll do that? The original recipe in terms of staff was, it was a lot of people from the, like record companies were right. working there. There was a lot of people from radio. Bob Pittman was a radio guy. Sure. So there's a lot of radio people, a lot of record promotion people. There weren't a lot of TV mm. people. Mm-hmm. And so, I, by the way, I was all 25 years old, but I was sort of a TV guy. Yeah. And I, I don't know, I just could see it. I embraced it. I went for it. The idea was there were so many things we could do through the prism of music, which is really how we looked at the world. Back in those days, everything we did had to have kind of a music connection, although remote control didn't. That was really the first thing that sort of broke through the glass wall there. But, you know, it's funny. We used to say it's going to be a game show but it's going to have a rock and roll attitude. Yeah, and it did. That was our, that was our big thing. It's like, it's going to be a new show right. with a rock and roll attitude. What can you think of again from that era? So let's say 86, 87, 85, 88, WTF or pinch me moments where you looked around and you're like, all right, this is cool. This is working. Live A was a big one. You're standing backstage with like everybody you ever dreamed about meeting, <laughs> you know, in one place who are very happy to talk to you because you have an MTV cube on your microphone. Yeah. 
We got out there at the crack of dawn. It was a brutally hot day in Philadelphia, like high heat, high humidity. I'm actually running around in shorts and a tank top. Like <laughs> that's the other thing I love that MTV. I got to do half my job in shorts. <laughs> we were backstage all day, but we could not get on stage. And near the end, security completely breaks down. So now it's ready for the finale. And I'm running around with a guy named Joe Davola, uh-huh. a lifelong friend of mine. Joe and I were backstage all day, you know, running around, getting interviews. And Joe says, hey, security is broken down. We can get the camera on stage. So we go up with the crew. We're standing outside the stage, the giant We Are the World finale. And I'm standing with the crew and Joe taps. You can't hear a thing. It's so loud. He taps me on the shoulder and he just points out to the stage and he'd like have the camera follow me. And he strolls out <laughs> and he gets behind like John Taylor and one of the other guys from Duran Duran. And I think Tommy Mottola puts his arms around them. They kind of look at him like, who are you? <laughs> And he sings, he sings, We Are the World with all the biggest stars in the world. Then the song ends and I take the crew and I run to the middle of the stage where Lionel Richie is. And I tap him on the shoulder and he turns around and I just shove a microphone in his face like he's the quarterback who just won the Super Bowl. And I'm asking him if he's going to go to Disneyland. And I go, how do you feel? (laughs) (laughs) um, He he sort of recoils a little bit and then he then he gives me an answer. That was my favorite part of uh, Live Aid. MTV, how do you feel? Oh man, what a night. What a day, what a night. Unbelievable. How long have you been in Philadelphia? Since this morning at 6, I came in on the red eye, had problems trying to go to sleep, turn on the television, been up all day. I can't go to sleep. It's so how, how much money did you raise tonight? What was that again? How much money did you raise tonight? $40 million. What, what could possibly be next after this? Well, I tell you, we can continue to keep raising $40 million. That's all it is, just continuing to keep the dream alive. We just made it up as we went along. There wasn't a rule book. There wasn't a playbook. We were creating something. We were inventing something. We were developing something. We had resources. We had the backing of our bosses. We had this amazing platform and we just went for it. You know, that was the beauty. That's what made it such an amazing experience and an amazing place and an amazing success. Would you give me a snapshot of your like after hours experience? Like, cause I got a picture in my head that you're painting the town red. Like you've got all access. So think about a building filled with people between the ages of, (laughs) for the most part, like 25 and 32. The media companies that owned New York City in those days were, the cool ones were MTV, Rolling Stone, and The Letterman Show. And if you work for any of those shows or any of those places, New York City was your oyster. So if you're MTV, you're getting concert tickets, anything you want every night. There isn't a club in town that you can't flash your MTV business card in or hands and, and get ushered directly into the VIP lounge. And you're running around with a bunch of like-minded, crazy people. You're working your ass off all day and you're partying hard every night. And I promise you, it was as much fun as it sounded. We had a great <laughs> time. We, we did. And then if that wasn't enough, every once in a while, we just throw ourselves a party. Yeah, for sure. Well, those, I mean, even by the time I showed up, we're legendary. Yeah. Well, that was part of the culture. Hey, it's Benjamin. What with hybrid work, heightened performance expectations, global unrest, and economic flux, there's a lot to manage. Most of us need all the help we can get. My company, Essential Industries, is a boutique coaching and consulting firm specializing in individual and organizational transformation, content strategy, and collaboration. If you, your team, or organization needs help creating or communicating effectively, facing uncertainty with confidence, or leading meaningful transformation, visit benjaminwagner.com or email me at benjaminbwagner at gmail.com. 
right now. I'd love to help. Now back to the show. One of my, um, the harder parts of the job was when we'd overstep and we'd say something that was unpopular. I there, were, just, there was a lot of that. <laughs> and I was the guy who had to, you know, sort of hold the wall because I was the senior exec and I was that person between the true senior execs and the news department. And I did understand that it was show business. Yeah. And we couldn't go around necessarily shitting on people for no reason at all or personal reasons just because we didn't like them or didn't like their music. And that there was this fine balance. And so you know, it was very frustrating. And then increasingly, as time went on, MTV News, at least when I was running it, was created in sort of entertainment news. Yeah. And then I think as time went on, and we began doing more work and good work and important work. The team began to see themselves as a news department yeah. and wanted to operate like a news department. And they, by the way, they did for the most part. But again, you know, just being attached to the mothership that is MTV right. and it being show right. business, right. it's a little gray and you've got to navigate that. Just do. I worked for Viacom two different times. So when I came back at the very tail end of my second tenure, I was running MTV again. And it was, with all due respect to anybody who still works there, it's on fumes. Yeah. And it was on fumes in 2017. I wanted to kind of redo the news department. And I hired all these great music journalists and try to double down on like that side of it for online, not for air. Yeah. And somebody wrote a really shitty review of the Kings of Leon. And like literally, it's like the week before I ended up leaving, you know, I get a call from their manager who's ripping me a new one because they're about to play the European Video Music Awards and what are we doing? And, you know, that's that's where we lived. I didn't know that you were the man behind the attempted revival. Of course, it makes so much sense. It also makes me feel so it happy. Very, it, was, it, was, it was a very short revival. I actually thought that there was enough equity left in MTV's brand. And w w with what was happening on online, there was a, I thought there was an for opportunity. Sure, for sure. I knew it couldn't do it on air. But, um, you know, we hired all kinds of really cool writers and yeah. it didn't last long. As I try and remind my kids, which they always make fun of me because they <laughs> just think it's so negative, I go, nothing lasts forever. Yeah. I go, except for Saturday Night Live, but, which is an anomaly. Yeah. But, uh, but outside of that, it's, yeah, it's really tough to, to go 50 years. You've played a part in so much legendary programming. I do get asked about one because it was huge, which is real world. We thought we should do a teen soap opera. This was the era of 90210, Melrose Place. And we we're like, wow, we should really be doing those shows. Of course, we couldn't afford them. Yeah. We're like, well, what if we could do like the cheaper, like your grandma kind of soap opera, but just do it with teens or young adults. We brought in a woman named Mary Ellis Bunham, who was a soap opera producer to help us sort of figure it out. And after spending a lot of time and money on it, honestly, because I'm a moron, <laughs> I then realized oh, we can't do this every day. We can't afford it. So, so we just shut it down. And then Mary Ellis came back a couple of weeks later with a guy named John Murray, and they basically pitched the real world, which, by the way, there was no reality television. There was no such thing as, quote, unscripted. We loved the pitch. They shot a pilot over three days in a loft in New York City over a Thanksgiving holiday with handicams. And then they edited that up into like two 20-minute episodes. And I remember they brought it in and we were like, oh my God, this is, this is like a TV show. It was probably a significant spend for us right. given, you know, as cheap as it might've been again, you know, everything was measured against showing a music video. Yeah. So if you were spending $25,000 on a half hour versus spending nothing, because yeah. also in those days, <laughs> you know, in the early days we we're getting the videos for nothing, right? 
So that, that changed too later, but you know, that was the bar. Yeah. So it had to do better than videos. Right. And so maybe there was a lot of debate about how well it could do or not, but it, it kind of took off right away. And as we know, the world was never the same. It's like, you can never beat those economics. <laughs> you, can, you can never, it was, those were daunting economics, yeah, but we, sure. but, but, but to our credit, you know, we did beat them time and time again. We came up with good ideas that didn't cost a ton yeah. that really got ratings and moved the, moved MTV forward and really engaged the audience. And when we would go out and do things with the audience, like spring break, yeah. there was no question that when we turned the cameras on the audience, they liked it more than anything else. And that was not lost on us. And, you know, as I like to say, you can draw a straight line from Instagram to the real world. How did you think about the growth of the Video Music Awards? I was sort of like the executive assigned to it. I think it was really year three. Don Olmeyer, who was a big time sports producer, was still producing it. He later went on to run NBC. But, you know, again, just like MTV, just like music news changed anything, you know, I had this notion that it should be bigger and broader and that it was like a pop culture phenomena. Right. And that's when we started not just booking rock stars, but like, let's book Magic Johnson to right. stand there with Elvira or let's book Pee Wee Herman and to really kind of make it more of a bigger, broader thing and the kind of show where anything could happen at any time and you never and, and make it sort of very unexpected. For sure. I think that's we all felt like award shows at that yeah. time, the Grammys, whatever it was, where it was just sort of stayed and it was exactly what you'd expect. Right. Right. And so we wanted to sort of blow the roof off, get the biggest stars, the right time, doing the right songs try and get folks to make surprise appearances and then really sort of fan out with these sort of pop culture figures from movies and television and fashion and sports. And it just, be, again, everybody wanted to be on MTV. Yeah. And in those days, all roads came through MTV to the point where we were talking to presidents. Yeah, there's just not a corollary in 2020. Well, I was going to say, it's very difficult unless you're of a certain age to understand and appreciate how big yeah. and how influential and how meaningful MTV was in the culture and particularly for young people. It's just, it, it'll, it'll never happen again when a day where we're so fragmented and, you know, I always tell people, you know, imagine, you know, YouTube and Spotify and TikTok and Instagram all rolled into one. Yeah. And that's what it was. It's what everybody watched. It's what everybody did. It's where everybody wanted to be. And um, it, was a lot, it was a lot of fun. Oh, man. Sure was. So you moved to comedy and eventually across all of entertainment and you got some exits and reentries. What'd you bring with you? Rock stars are different than comedians. Like Groucho Marx once said, you never want to be a member of any club that'll have you. Right. And they're just, they're a different breed and they're wired differently. So not everything translated. I just try to bring a lot of things I learned, not only about MTV and programming, but, you know, in terms of dealing with artists and then managing a staff and just a lot of different things. Uh, but also a little bit of like the anything is possible. Let's try it. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Let's push the envelope. Part of my MTV news experience led me to The Daily Show. And part of my MTV influence led me to looking at something like South Park and going, I don't know if we could do this, but we ought to try it. See, yeah. see, see what happens. So some of that DNA definitely got dragged over. It was great to be a young person and and grow up in that business. And you're talking the luckiest guy you'll ever meet. Right place, right time. It was fun while it lasted. You really were like optimized for the gig, man. I think about that a lot. I knew I wanted to be in or near show business is something I had decided as kind of a young man who could imagine MTV, yeah. who could imagine I'm going to be an executive. You know, when I was growing up, there were only three 
sort of TV presidents. Just didn't seem like a like a good career path yeah. or even one I was even thinking of. So given everything that I'm passionate about, oh my God, like yeah. I, f- I fell into the right thing and it never felt like work. Yeah. I mean, it, in fact, just uh, mostly just the opposite. I can't believe I get to do this and somebody's gonna pay me to do this. Awesome. It was a time. It was, really was a time. Is there a moment where you leveraged your position to get access to a place, an experience, or an artist, or someone that you're just like, I'm dying to meet. For me, I flew to Sundance on like a moment's notice to do a Bono interview. I was super conscious, particularly in like the last 10 years, like, this is special. This doesn't last forever. I don't own this job. I'm just renting it. I wish I was more appreciative in the early days when you're running around like a maniac. But it's sort of take a little bit more of it in. But, you know, that's youth. I met Bruce Springsteen many times along the way. Big yeah, fan. Jersey yeah, guy. I'm a yeah. Jersey guy. I mean, just, you know, it's I'm born into it. What can I say? Even from the first time I met him, which was that Entertainment Tonight thing in 1984, I could barely utter more than, <laughs> hey, man, nice to meet you. And I had my, whether it was award shows or different things over the years, to pump his hand and say hello. And then John Stewart started to get friendly with him. Right. And I met him a couple of times with John. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm going to get my opportunity one day to have my adult conversation with Bruce Springsteen. So I started in my mind trying to put together, like, here's what I'm going to say to Bruce next time I see him. So it's Christmas time. This is like 2015, maybe 14. I go down to the Daily Show. I'm wearing a suit and tie, which I never did. It was uh, the day of uh, the infamous Philippe Dumans, who was running Viacom's, his holiday cocktail party, which was... Suits required, very yeah. formal. So I put my suit on, but I'm going to go down to The Daily Show. It's my last trip to New York for the year. And I'm going to go just go see John and say, hey, man, happy holidays. Love you. See you in January. And I get down to The Daily Show and I walk into this little holding room, which is where John usually hangs right before he goes on. So that's where I was going to say hello. And there's nobody in there except the warm-up guy. And I see on the couch, it's Bruce Springsteen and one of his sons. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, it's Bruce. Okay. So I don't say anything about who I am or anything. I just walk over and the two of them pop up right out of their seats and they stick out their hands like, hey, and I go, hey, nice to see you guys. Thanks so much for coming. It's great to see you guys. And then I start, I got nothing. I'm like, New Jersey, and I can feel like the flop sweat on my brow. I'm like, this is going bad. I have nothing here. So I turn to his son and I say, hey, man, you must be in school somewhere. And he goes, nope. And he goes, he goes, I'm trying to be a fireman. I'm like, right, of course you are. Okay, I'm done. I'm just toast. So I very graciously go, hey, great to see you guys. Thanks so much for coming. Glad you could be here. And I'm walking away and I think to myself, I'm already in discussions with John about his future departure. We're already starting to talk. So I I know there's a clock ticking. And I think to myself, this could be the last time I'm in a room with Bruce Springsteen. And so I turn around, I go, hey, man, um, you mind if I get a picture? And he puts his hand on my shoulder and he goes, yeah, man, that's what I do. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, now I'm that guy in the suit who wants the picture. But, you know, I got my picture with Bruce. (laughs) It's also nice to hear that you, I mean, like, that's a very human story, Doug. I'm just a fan. I have one or two other more mortifying stories that I'm not willing to share. By the way, the opportunity to work with John Stewart yeah. or Stephen Colbert Incredible. or any of these musical artists, that's rarefied air. And just to be in the same room with them and sometimes collaborating with them or just being there is was always thrilling. 
I'm really glad you mentioned Philippe because <laughs> I don't know. That's the only time you'll ever hear that lead, right? Right. But <laughs> legitimately, <laughs> no yeah, one ever said ever. Said no one ever. Right? <laughs> but, but some of the most stressful moments in my career to date, and I I went through some shit at Facebook, man. We're going into that boardroom and or going into a smaller conference room to pitch him stuff. And I mean, I never knew my name. I was just a list of, you know, white guys in sport coats. Right. But I wondered, like, you had to have experienced some stress. That's a lot to carry. Came back to Viacom in 2004 to take over Comedy Central for the second time. And then ultimately, you know, started doing Spike and TV Land and a couple others. And then when Van Toffler left... They gave me MTV and VH1, which I did not want. And that last 18 months for me at Viacom, when Philippe was embroiled in all that drama with the board and Sherry and everything that was going on and Sumner, and we were doing very poorly as streaming was starting to eat our lunch. It was as stress. I mean, I always tell people my last 18 months at Viacom were my worst time professionally ever. And by the way, I was at Fox for, yeah. You know, yeah. For a cup of coffee, working for Rupert Murdoch for 16 months, back in the dawn of the millennium. And uh, that was unpleasant, but honestly, not as unpleasant as my last 18 months at, at Viacom. It was brutal. Yeah. It was not fun. And I was stressed out in a way that I'd never been stressed out. How'd you manage it? How'd you process it? Like, what'd you do? I think if you talk to folks who worked with me or for me, they would tell you I'm not like a high highs, low, low guys. I'm sort of kind of like an even keel guy, I think was part of my sort of who I am and, and who, what I tried to be. But it just began to wear. I mean, I was, I was, it literally was like physically wearing on me. Yeah. I was miserable. Yeah. I was coming back and forth from New York to LA a lot. Yeah. It was a ton of pressure. And, you know, we were laying people off and reorganizing yeah, yeah. and burning furniture. And it's just miserable. Yeah. And I did not enjoy it. In fact, when I left the company, I was pretty relieved. I loved my job. I really did up until the very end. It was the greatest job you could ever have. But I had become pretty unhappy in it. And um, that wasn't going to change any time for me. So that was that. What made for a great MTV employee? What shared values? What attributes? Certainly when I was there from 84 to 95, particularly under Tom Freston and Judy McGrath, it became like Camelot. Yeah, I mean, yeah. they were amazing leaders. They helped create an amazing corporate culture that valued people, valued everybody, valued diversity, valued new ideas yep. and doing the right thing and treating people right. Yeah. And so when you add that to a lot of, to people who are doing great work and having a lot of success, I mean, it was as good a time as you could have. Yeah. Everybody wanted to work at MTV. Yeah, so everybody sure. was trying to get through the door and we had our choice of the best of the best. Yeah. It was a really, really special place. I, and by the way, I've worked in a lot of different places. A lot of my friends spent the majority of their career at MTV. Like I said, I had that hiatus where I went to work for Fox and then over a USA network and got my peek into a lot of different corporate cultures and nothing like Viacom in the old days. Nothing. Yeah. Not even close. What life lessons did news provide you, if any? At the end of the day, the, the thing I love the most about what I did was working with really inspired people. Yeah. A great idea from an inspired person who's got the ability to execute it. I just don't think you'd ever match that. And there were tons of them at MTV. Yeah. Tons. Yeah. Yeah. So many ta enormously talented people. Like I said, it, it, it was a time and a place. It was like the 27 Yankees, you know? <laughs> so how do you think of the legacy, especially as somebody who saw the value not so long ago and tried to sort of pump life back into MTV News? I think it's hard for anything to stay as relevant as MTV was for as long as it did. So that's kind of 
probably just gravity. Were there some missteps along the way? Yeah, but was it probably going to happen? I mean, was the world going to fragment anyway? MTV was this like single entity. Like I said, unless you were there or alive then and could watch it and feel the impact, it's really hard to explain because there's nothing like it anymore. I think it's up there with like Sinatra, Elvis, The Beatles, MTV, like yes. where most people just sort of gravitate towards this one thing. And we haven't seen it in a really long time. We're seeing it now with Taylor Swift, yep. which by the way, I don't, you know, she's not the Beatles, Elvis Sinatra. She's something else, but it's that thing yeah. that people are paying a lot of attention to. Yeah. So I think MTV in its own way was kind of that thing there for, for a while. It was great to watch MTV News evolve over the years and become, honestly, a real respected news department, win a lot of awards, make documentaries, do all kinds of things, and had a real impact on an entire generation. Who won't forget it and haven't forgotten it? No matter where you stood in that line, it's great to be part of that alum group. You Hear It First, an unofficial and unfiltered history of MTV News is an Essential Industries podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and comment wherever you get your podcasts and visit BenjaminWagner.com for more episodes and information on our creative coaching and consulting services. Until next time, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends. Lifelong friends.